Welcome, welcome to uh, the Regeneration Podcast. Mike Sauter here with my good friend, Michael Martin. And uh, we're uh, with you. I, we plan to be once a week. Uh, you just finished hearing out some intro music there. And what we haven't mentioned in the past three installments was the fact that my Goomba here, he's got some connection to that intro music. Tell, tell people about yourself, your background with that and that piece in particular, Michael. Well, I wrote that piece. You wrote it? Uh, <clears throat> it's to me where the, the fiddler came from. I didn't know you wrote it. No, I wrote the piece. And that was from, a, I actually wrote that tune for uh, a production of Twelfth Night that I directed of eighth graders, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe. <laughs> it's kind of high end. That's neat. It's kind of high end. Yeah. And uh, um, interestingly, the kid who played uh, Festy the Clown in Twelfth Night and who sang that song, he contacted me recently that he's, he's an actor now and and he was in some production doing something with Twelfth Night, and he want, wanted to ask if they could use the song because hmm. he, he still sings it to himself. Um, and you told him, "No way! There's royalties coming <clears throat> out your ears, right?" That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah, show me the money. That's what yeah, I said. That's right. No, I didn't. I said, "Go ahead." But uh, that's awesome. That particular session right there, when we cut that one with the the Corktown Popes, my compatriots. Uh, so we, we, we got together to do this session and we wanted to do it as much as possible live, or at least, you know, we did, we did a few overdubs. Um, so I played acoustic guitar, the singer who doesn't show up on there sang live. We had uh, the drummer, Ron, Ron Pangborn, who has played with uh, Was Not Was and Matthew Sweet, and Marshall huh. Crenshaw, everybody. He, he's done sessions with Glenn Johns. Really? Uh, he knows everybody. Yeah. Um, so he played drums, really sweet guy. Uh, bass player Takashi Io, who is a Detroit session guy, really great, great player. And you can tell because like he said, what are we going to do? I said, go crazy. And uh -huh. you can tell, especially at the end of the outro, he goes crazy. And, uh, and my brother-in-law, who I've been friends with since we were teenagers, he produced it and he actually plays electric guitar in it. I think in banjo and we overdubbed uh mandolin i played the mandolin and we overdubbed uh all in pipes so we have an irish piper tom donahue and uh we also overdubbed uh the fiddle which is phenomenal and uh ryan joseph is the fiddler's name he, okay. he he's alan jackson's fiddler <laughs> and so we 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 sit we sent everything to him you know, which is great because, gosh, when I, when I started the music business, it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars to do this. I bet. So we sent him the file and he just threw down some some fiddle tracks over it, which are kind of mind-blowingly good. So, What's so the name of the song fun. so people were looking it up? Uh, if you can, it's, it's on my website. It's The Wind in the Rain is the okay. name of the song. Awesome. And, uh, but it was great fun. We played, in fact, the... the the second of the outro we we cut it and or we, we i showed them the song and our singer terry terry burns said i don't think it's long enough we, get, we need something else i said how about we just add this at the end and i came up with a couple chords and we we learned it right there we did it we did it in two or three takes well you it know, works almost. great for it certainly works great for an intro and an outro and and, and there I mean, the thing is when you play with really really good players it's it was an absolute delight. I bet. I was in a an opposite kind of band in college. We three of my housemates. I had to learn the bass guitar. We learned three songs. You know, like squeeze box, maybe pretty easy. Uh, my generation, but uh, I couldn't do I couldn't do the uh, the solos. Do there. Okay. <laughs> no, but uh, that's where I would just kind of like talk about go crazy. But go crazy. Yours was organized chaos. When this guy went, mine was chaos chaos. And then we probably played five or six little uh, four song concerts in our living room in our college house. Our name was Shock Value, which we liked the name. We all took names to him. Mine was Stain, lead guitar. His name was Nail. <laughs> <laughs> we had the drummer Rocco and the bassist. Uh, I was bassist because our bassist, for the whole time we actually played, he was in Mexico. I was just supposed to be, I think, a singer or something. But then I learned a few. Uh, a few That's too funny. Yeah, it is too funny. Um, so today, uh, 
we're going to talk, we're going to introduce a term that I think is going to weave back in many times. And probably because things are hitting a maximum velocity here with what's going on in the world, it or might ludicrous. become a reality. Ludicrous, ludicrous speed. Ludicrous right. speed. But the, the key term is parallel polis. Yes. And you wrote a blog entry on that term. Why don't you talk about riffing, riff on that for a little bit here? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not my term. I got it from Vaclav Havel and uh, and the Czech dissidents of the 70s. Um, and uh, I, the I, first time I was ever published in, in a national journal, it was in uh, Cross Currents. Are they still around? I know it well. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And uh, this is 1997. And it was not long after the fall of communism in the East. Mm-hmm. And when, when Vaclav Havel became the first uh, president of the Czech Republic. But in Czechoslovakia, he, he was a dissident and it had been imprisoned many times. He was a playwright, a real human being, real human being. And so in the 70s, he wrote uh, a lot about he and his friends actually is his circle about this parallel polis this society within the society uh, that doesn't that doesn't buy the 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 society in which they were living you know and it's in his book uh, living in truth living in, in truth. english and i think rod dreyer i'm not positive i think rod dreyer is was somewhat influenced by Vaclav Havel's idea of living. I'm sure he was. I still haven't read his latest <clears throat> "Live Not by Lies." I'm sure, but I think it. I think that's where the that's I think that's where it comes from. I haven't sure. read it either, but uh, and so and, and he was. You know, I remember hearing his name a lot when I was in high school. So, you know, I think he uh, says this essay, which I used quite a bit in that in that blog post, "The Power of the Powerless." which I think was published in 78. So I was 15 or so. Um, I remember hearing his name a lot and then, but not, not getting it. And then coming to his, his writing years later, you know, I saw, wow, this guy, not only did he live through it, but he had a, he, and it, but his plan for living through it was to actually live through it. Some people say like what living well is the best revenge, right? It is, and uh, and here, here, I'm gonna give a little quote which I think might include the blog. This is from uh, the Power of the Powerless. It says, for what else are parallel structures than an area where a different life can be lived, a life that is in harmony with its own aims, and which in turn structures itself in harmony with those aims? What else are those initial attempts at social self-organization? than the efforts of a certain part of society to live as a society within the truth and thus to extricate itself radically from its involvement in the post-totalitarian system. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, I was going through this essay last night and this morning in, in anticipation of our conversation and these don't seem dated at all. No, no, I no. mean, he's, he's speaking directly to the situation I think we're in right now. Yeah. Not, not only, and, and I wrote that, uh, that blog post, I think it was August of 2021, uh, in, the, in the middle of the pandemic craziness, right? Where it had mm-hmm. been extending much longer than any of us thought it was going to go, right? After uh, 14 days to flatten the curve. <laughs> there's, a way, there's a way to contextualize it too, how these... These Eastern Europeans, you know, when we were talking yesterday about this, you're going to bring up uh, Cezla Miloš as well. Yeah. And I, um, I a long time ago, read The Captive Mind. I don't have a copy near me, but I had been, uh, in fact, this week, even rereading his um, The Land of Oro. You know, a lot of the same themes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, the, um, but you get a sense in reading these guys from Eastern Europe, specifically Russia, is that they might have been, think of Russia in particular that you know, they were behind, uh, they had to do the enlightenment and everything so quick. But also some people make the case that they went through the whole cycle that we're now seeing now. That's another way of saying it. Of course, we can mention Orwell, but we can say that they, they got to the game late, hyper-rationalism, 
of nihilism. And then they, they just went through the whole cycle. They started after and they saw more before. So mm -hmm. these guys are prophetic. Milos was saying, as a young man, I was struck by the magnitude of what was occurring in my century, a magnitude equaling, perhaps even surpassing the decline and fall of antiquity, right? Yeah, you know? I agree. And, and you know, I don't know about you, but so I was really, you know, I have a kind of a history with uh, Holocaust survivors. Okay. You know, and reading, not really reading Holocaust literature. So, but I have kind of a, an a, obsession with Edith Stein, okay. you know, and, uh, and Simone Weil, right? So these were Jews who were drawn to Christianity, who, in fact, they were, they were completely secularized Jews who found, who had this call toward Christianity after seeing that Marxism just would never cut it. It would never live up to it, its promise, right? Which all you have to do is spend a, spend a week in higher education and you'll know exactly why that is. <laughs> yeah, I can't live up to its promise. Oh, man. Don't even get me going. Um, and, and I don't know if you've seen the film A Hidden Life. Did you see this? It's about uh, Franz Jägerstatter, who was not Jewish. Oh, but... I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Terrence Malik. His name will yeah. come up a lot, too. Sure. And these people, you I know, so. who who, uh, who lived through those things. And since I became a teacher, right? So when I was a school teacher, uh, Waldorf teacher, I remember telling my students, and this is almost 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I said, you know, we would, you know, we would go through a, a unit on modern history and we would talk about, you know, the rise of, of Hitler and Gandhi and other people. And I said, and I would tell them, I said, don't think it can't happen again. And don't think it can't happen here. And that has been a kind of a current, a, a constant theme through my teaching, even as a college and university professor, right? I tell them all, you know, I'll tell these college freshmen and seniors, says, don't think it's not going to happen. Yeah. Don't think it can't happen. It's like all these things were singularities, right? You know, you could look at modern history, I feel sometimes by saying, because chattel slavery was, nothing else could be slavery. Because Hitler was, nothing else could be fascism, right? Right. And so because we can we can fetishize uh, these things, uh, huge tragedies, both those things for sure, unmistakably. But um when we there's a certain way of focusing on one particular instance of something that has kind of a funny way of denying exactly what you're saying that they could be creeping up on us once again right and there was a term in in the soviet era hypernormalization. in fact adam curtis made a documentary of it right where you know everything's crazy everybody knows everything's insane nothing makes sense but people go along with it as if it did yeah Right. And, but I've never been the kind of person who can go along with it as, as if it did. Um, <laughs> it's a lonely I mean, just, crowd, right? <clears throat> well, it is. But I think, yeah. you know, I, there are some people who I just don't, can't go along with the crowd. And I'm, I just hate, it hasn't been, hasn't been a real smart career move. I just have to say. <laughs> but, but I can't do it. A lot I of can't. Joy nonetheless. No, no. Agreed. I mean, you, yeah, I can't do it um i could i couldn't do it in higher education you know and i think right now you see hyper normalization in uh, all the craziness uh around uh you know the so-called uh gender spectrum right because a lot of people don't buy it but they won't say anything because they don't want to get canceled or no, anything right. it's not even right? that they don't buy it it's just that the language is there and it feels that um yeah, seamlessly, it's on the news, and then just downstream a little bit, it's just coming out of people's mouths. That's why, you know, when people talk about the um, the next outrage, you know, they're already mm -hmm. planning the next outrage. Mm -hmm. um, there's all these memes online about the different hats people have to wear, from the uh, the hats uh, after Trump was elected to the hats, <laughs> which have the offensive name, to uh, the mm -hmm. different colors we're supposed to brandish, uh, the colors du jour. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's 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 a it's astounding to watch this parade of things uh, just kind of march by us, isn't it? I think it's probably how you and I got connected in some way. Yeah, because I just can't, I can't, I can't believe people believe it. <laughs> no, no. You know, 
And uh, but but I and I think with cancel culture is certainly part of that, right? Mm-hmm. So all these and and they're all. Um, I think so much of it is engineered from it is but you think like there's a metaphysics behind it maybe metaphysics isn't the right word but i was just thinking how um i don't know if i can find the exact quote but i've said it since i used to be in youth ministry that john paul ii said you know the greatest heresy in the history of the church was the the belief in inevitable progress right yeah Mm -hmm. so let's say that was downloaded into people before any of this stuff came upon i don't know how much you've read of spangler but you and i can both talk the language that much more, much more um, enlightening to me is this notion of the rise and falls of civilizations. And doesn't mean so, you know, better than a closed tight circle, you know, we can talk about a spiral. But uh, so if you believed, um, and right now we're at the decline of a spiral, like Cezlan Miloš, you know, he hadn't seen this type of decline set in so fast, the craziness since uh, antiquity. But the, um, I suppose that prior to this kind of the, and I like that term, hypo, hyper-normalization. But the, the new thing is happening so fast right now, right? Mm-hmm. The latest new thing might just be lasting like a matter of weeks. Um, but the, if you believed in inevitable progress, I do think that like that forms your brain to just kind of download these things, doesn't it? I believe in science. Yeah, right? yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the myth of progress. Right. And, uh, and that that kind of uh, positivism that comes with it, right? Mm-hmm. Which uh, an important book by Vladimir Soloviev, the great sociologist, was against the positivists, yeah. right? And, and, and so Soloviev was interested in an integral civilization. That's why it attracted him to the idea of theocracy and, and how... how how do civilizations thrive and flourish? And I think this is also uh, um, many people, myself included, I think, look back to medieval t- times, medieval Europe, as uh, Novalis looked at this. Uh, what's his name? John Ruskin looked at the, at the medieval times as maybe not everything was perfect, but you still maintain the idea of a cohesive society center around, you could either say village life or pastoral, you know, which, um, and, and of course, and, and, and this is one thing that, that comes up with, with Havel is atheism is antithetical to that kind of flourishing. Completely. Because because eight with atheism, according in his opinion and others, is uh, what happens is you, you since there's no, there are no transcendent values other than how I feel or you know whatever we feel is good for society. You know, of course, it's not we; it's whatever the social engineers feel is good for society, like signing a treaty with the world health organization for instance right and uh that those those are not transcendent goods those are utilitarian goods if that and without a transcendental transcendent dimension we can and this is where we we get to sociology you know without a, a relationship between uh the cosmos on the ground and the cosmos that we can't see the visible and invisible worlds um there is no possibility for human flourishing right 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 the, no uh, when you mentioned positivism that's actually the name when i mentioned Meloche's book the land of oro oro comes from one of the four levels or ways we can exist the lowest being for william blake william right. blake seminal totally utterly seminal but the mm-hmm. lowest one was oro and it was a world that you know was characterized by outness that things out there you know a non-participatory world we're, we're not mm-hmm. implicated in what we look at it's out there um it's uh, we can manipulate it we stand on stand on a precipice and kind of like mess with it like you can mm-hmm. in a in a lab um and yeah and that um this is this is always kind of a, a late stage um william blake also called it deism deism mm-hmm. 
you know, and for him, that was a uh, Locke, Bacon and Newton were the, the three antichrists. You That's know, right. For handing on that vision. And it, it's all it's all there. And you mentioned like theocracy, too, that the Middle Ages. Yeah, they had what you and I would both say. Uh, certain listeners are going to say, oh, my God, it's those guys. It's those guys. Last episode, mm-hmm. you and I might have been having some fun with the distributors a little bit, but there's no desire to go back to the Middle Ages. But what was interesting is that there was indeed a rough sketch there, you know, kind of an organic society. The festivals, the festivals were holding. You had a liturgical year. You had some relation, you know, uh, a cosmology where man was a microcosm connected mm-hmm. to the macrocosm. And when people hear theocracy, you and I cannot blame them for thinking of top down WHO type of administration. But we're not, you know, in fact, right, not at all, come, yeah. the word parallel polis is going to mean exactly the opposite. And Sophia, if we're going to connect it to the divine feminine uh, lurking in all things, including matter. The, the root word of matter is mother. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're specifically be, going to be talking about the bottom up, the bottom up, anarchic mm-hmm. principles and so forth. Do you agree with that? Absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that, I mean, so that's why, it, you know, uh, why, why I wrote that piece a year, almost a year ago. But I mean, everything I do, and we, we've been doing, you know, since I met you at the farm in 2016, uh-huh. is really trying to find ways to uh, organize or at least uh, initiate or sow the seeds for a parallel polis. Yeah. To find, to, because peop, I think a lot of times people just don't think there's any other alternatives to what, what, they're, what they're handed, right? No, so what let's, the, let's, what the culture hands them. Right. And so before, before we talk, you know, tease it a little bit what if you don't mind following um we're not going to map out our conversation we're going to have but you know we're going to say why the top down i think doesn't work but before we before we kind of dissect that a little bit or at least i have my own dissection of it uh the parallel polis is involving things from the bottom up uh those things mentioned in your blog csas uh Mm -hmm. say more um so for Havelin and his uh, compatriots, it was well. It started with them with the arts and with uh, being able to speak. And they, he gives a great example. Um, where does that go here? Of of a green grocer, right? Of a guy for the grocery store. And let me see. Who, who decides he's not, you know, the idea was in Czechoslovakia, if you had a grocery store, you had, you were expected to put this poster in the, in the window, you know, some slogan supporting, you know, the power structure, you know, it's like, like putting like out like a flag or something, you know what <laughs> right. I mean? Yeah. yeah. And nobody his, does that. Nobody does that in the West, Michael Martin. Oh, no. But, uh. Nobody shows their support for the power strike. And where is it? Some chance. So what, it, what? What his thing is is then one day, the green grocer decides, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm taking that. I'm taking the, the the posters coming out of the window, and I I'm not going to tell people what they want to hear anymore or what I'm what I'm expected to say. I'll speak what I think is the truth, and you do that one time, and what you know. It, and it gets easier to do it the next time. And, and what happens is then, now for, for, for Havel, you know, for him, for his expression, since he was a playwright, was through the arts and through writing, right? And through conversation with like-minded individuals. Um, but then there are also other things where he talks about, for instance, um, he says here, uh, independent initiatives address the hidden sphere. They demonstrate that living within the truth is a human and social alternative. And they struggle to expand the space available for that life. They help, even though it is, of course, indirect help, to raise the confidence of citizens. They shatter the world of appearances and unmask the real nature of power. So I use the example in that blog post of when we did May Day a year a year ago, and how all these people showed up, who got tired of being told they couldn't gather in groups and they had to wear masks and you know what I mean, right. all this stuff, and 
And that's an example of parallel. That's a perfect example of a parallel polis is people coming together uh, to live in truth. Yep. Right. And again, and, uh, having a living well is the best revenge, that type of thing. Yeah. Celebrating, you know. Yeah. Best and 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 to, and to not accept, you know, to not accept the lie anymore. Yeah. You know, and, and it's and it's uh, you have to hand it to. As we talked when we talked to Guido a few weeks ago, um, you got to hand it to, to the people who orchestrated all these uh, recent social developments, and they're still trying to do it, right? I think uh -huh. this WHO thing is the just the latest installment, and in and as Guido said, they probably have ten steps down down the road figured out already. He really does think that way, and he might be right. You know, I just think... as you think something starts fraying, there's this new. Yeah, they got uh, the new thing. Yeah, it's expert. You know, the other the other nope. word I think is illuminating regarding all that is emergencyocracy, right? Yeah. You know, every emergency can lead to a new kind of, uh, uh, you know, it used to be the war on drugs when you used the word war for anything. You knew mm -hmm. there was going to be the power that flew to the top, uh, like the um, like the Patriot uh, mm -hmm. Act and so forth. There was the not Patriot gonna... Act. <laughs> How can you be against the Patriot Act? <laughs> right, Aren't right, right. Patriotic. And these freedoms were never ever coming back. And emergencyocracy gets to the same thing, right? You mm -hmm. don't even need that same word. War on drugs. War, yeah. war. Uh, yeah. You just have you have the emergency du jour, and then there's there's a power grab associated with that. That's right. The temporary per, uh, Patriot Act now in its twenty first year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so people, it, ask, people ask why I don't believe anything the government says. Oh, it gets so tricky. It gets so <laughs> tricky. Uh, the other, but, you know, the, the phrase "building the new in the shell of the old," right? That's a simple moniker. Well, not. You don't I, think so? Well, I I wouldn't say in the shell of the old as as much, and this is why I think the parallel idea is interesting because yeah. I'm not wait. You're not waiting for the old to die. I mean, Agreed. it might be already be dead. So you start to live in truth, and you live. And and you 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 definitely will find uh, people who are also trying to live in the truth, and you know and and my and I tell people you know, this this might be you know your family and one other family at first, mm -hmm. but you, you you start where you are. Simple things like barter, right? When we my wife's a piano teacher, and uh, has been doing that for many many years, but um. Every so often, not not even as an act of defiance, but they they are somewhat. Uh, we had a a neighbor who had dairy cows, you know, and just uh, unpasteurized milk was there. And I'm not claiming to people that I only drink unpasteurized milk, but yeah, sure, she could take that. Uh, we have right now. There's when the kids are away, uh, we just have seven chickens, but that's way too many eggs for just uh, the two of us. So we're giving out eggs or 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 even you know, selling a few eggs. And, but a lot of it's through um, uh, piano lessons mm -hmm. uh, in our house, these simple acts uh, that go around. Um, we, we think I live in a hamlet and I was at a neighbor's house last summer and we got talking how, uh, you know, that there was an old antique store that was closed, but we could just, the community could buy it. And um, those of us could just go there and trade on Saturdays. I always have way too many tomatoes in my garden but my clay soil, which isn't great for anything, not even great for tomatoes, but I have a lot of success with them. Uh, you know, trading those for other things, you know, so at the, at the lowest level, um, boy, and I'm, I'm lucky to live in, I, I call my community, it's south of Rochester, and as you travel south, you actually see, if you look at a map, you see the beginnings of those hills uh, that constitute Appalachia. And uh, I think technically, if you, if you zoomed in on Google, Appalachia begins about five miles south of my house. Mm, wow. uh, and uh, we, we call the road that goes south and actually goes downhill, the gateway to Appalachia. But so a lot of these things are pretty advanced where we are. We're considered backward, but again, they're pretty, they're pretty advanced. They would seem very foreign to a lot of people, the amount of barter that even takes place in my small rural hamlet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's the same here, like we mentioned before, dealing with the Amish. I mean, the Amish are a perfect example of a parallel polis. Yeah. So they live alongside, you know, the main polis. Yet, they're doing their own thing and they're, they're not of it. I mean, they don't participate in the medical establishment. They don't uh, pay social security, right? They take care of each other. 
they don't put send their kids to public schools, you know. So so they're li- and so they're they're an example. I mean, and they show it can be done, right? They can show they not only they show it can be done, they sh- they show it can be done in a flourishing manner, right? But I think most people are afraid to to go there. Uh, most people who aren't Amish, that is. <laughs> um, but but that's I think you know part of I think there's a kind of romanticism. Um, among people who want to go, I'm going to go on a little tour of Amish country. I think right. probably what's what's underlying that is, you know, maybe an unspoken desire for that kind of simplicity and uh, authenticity and community. Yeah, we, which we don't have in the right. West, generally speaking. Right. Some people call that the, um, you know, the distinction between nostalgia. It's a nostalgic age for a simpler age. It can be in the microcosm of our own youth, or you can look at somebody like the Amish or go to Colonial Williamsburg and feel this wild nostalgia for when everything was more simple. Um, but if the Amish, are, like, yeah, but if the Amish are doing it now, it's not nostalgia for them, right? I, I totally agree. I and totally that's agree. the thing. And it yeah. shows it can be done. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it just takes, and I took, and what it took, what it take for the Amish it took uh, the feeling of persecution. Mm-hmm. To have that ha- that happen, and you know that's one of the things Rod Dreher is always criticized for is he's kind of paranoid. You know they're out to get me just because <laughs> they're out to get me doesn't mean you're paranoid. <laughs> you know, yeah. but uh, but they, it's interesting. Now here is an interesting sidebar. Now as you know, I'm a beekeeper, and do you know what propolis is? I do not. Propolis, and you actually they make. Uh, herbal remedies or homeopathic remedies from propolis propolis is bee glue and they use it so if if you have a hive you've seen the boxes that people use for 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 beehives and the bees will glue together those boxes why which is why when i go out to work with bees i have to bring uh called a hive tool to break them open and sometimes it's really hard to break the seal and even they, they they glue the frames together I mean, they're, they're really efficient little guys. Um, but propolis, it, it's from the Greek. It means on behalf of the city, propolis. On behalf of the city. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even begin to break apart those words. When you meant- yeah. And I actually, I had used the term forever and I didn't, then I, I don't know where I, I propolis. I, yeah. I looked it up or, or I was, did some, said, does that have something to do with the city? It has, actually does have to do with the city. You know, so, so I'm propolis in that way, right? Uh-huh. And, beha- and behalf of the village of the community, right? Yeah. And uh, and that's what, what what Havel was doing, and he was doing it. You know, in fact, I I, re- I pulled out that old cross currents the other day, and the first thing in it is a uh, an essay by him. I thought, boy, I've arrived. Yeah. And he talks about. Um, you know, not, he was president of of the Czech Republic at this point, and he talks about you know he didn't think he'd ever travel outside of his country ever that he'd ever be allowed to. And the first thing I thought of when I read it today was Justin Trudeau and the <laughs> and keeping people who are unvaccinated from traveling within their own country. Freedom of movement has always been seen, right? People don't get it now. You know, that again, we lose, we lose our ability to think, but the, the, the fact that like the loss of freedom of movement did not shock people was shocking to me. It's yeah. always been stipulated. as yeah. And here's, I'll read this first part of this. The, here's how he opens the essay. And the, na- and the title of his essay is A Sense of the Transcendent. Hmm. This was a president of a Western Nation. Can you imagine? Right? Yeah. No. For virtually my whole life, with the exception of a brief period in the late 60s, I was barred from leaving my country. As the long decades went by, I got used to this absurd situation that I simply assumed I would never get to see any other parts of the world. Needless to say, visiting, visiting a continent as distant as Australia was, I thought, absolutely impossible. In my mind, Australia was one of those fabulous worlds beyond reach. Worlds one cannot enter, just as one cannot land on a faraway star or step into another country. A few years ago, everything changed. 
The world opened up to us all. And I, as, as head of state, began to travel all over the globe. Um, now, I don't know about you, but in 1989, my at the end of that year, my eldest child was born. And I remember it was maybe a month or six weeks before is the Berlin Wall was going down. Yeah. And I remember watching that and thinking, and right around the same time, Nelson Mandela was released. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, the world is going to be a better place than it was when I was a kid growing up in the Cold War. Boy, am I naive. No, it's shocking, yeah. right? Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> the, you know, one of the, I, I can't find the actual reference, but I remember reading an article by a guy, Andre Navrazov, who was talking about Orwell, who said, you know, that this distinction has been in my mind for the past few months that, you know, this notion that fascism is a boot on your head, right? Or communism, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, the other communism is boot on your head, reminding you that you're not free, you're not free. And that we all know the distinction, but fascism is reminding you you're free, but you really, your freedoms are limited. Like you can still technically walk into a church, but where are Catholic hospitals? What are the restrictions placed on, say, Catholic schools, most of which uh, the leaders of the church have given into without even a fight? Mm-hmm. But um, you know, fascism is this notion that you're free, but all of a sudden you look around and you don't have these freedoms. Well, anyhow, uh, this guy, Andre Navrazov, he claimed that Orwell said at one point after you know, writing his books that said, when this virus of robbing people of their freedoms crosses the pond, meaning the Atlantic, it's going to be 10 times worse because it's going to take the appearance of flies trapped in honey, right? That fly, you're talking about bees. The fly that traps is trapped in honey is totally trapped. It's never getting out, but it thinks it's free because it's, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's drunk on, it's drunk mm-hmm. on the sugar. You know, yeah. and that's what, that's what we do see coming around in our time. We're off we're all talking about these freedoms we have, but I look around and I don't see it that much. You know? I don't see it at all. In fact, I see less and less freedom. Yeah. But this is why you, <laughs> you live in truth yeah. and to live in truth is to live in freedom. You know, I, I suppose, you know, uh, social conditions might try to limit that freedom, mm-hmm. but, and that's, in fact, uh, Bonnie, my wife and I were, when we, we decided we we're going to start doing these festivals, despite all the mandates against things, against gatherings of more than three people from your own family and, you know, all the absurdity, right? Total. That we, we just said, we have, we have to do this. We have to, it's not just for us anymore. You know, we have to do this for the world, you know, and, it, and you think, you know, so we did this thing, 50 people showed up this year. I think we had 30 um doesn't really it's not really that big of a deal right <laughs> i think in my, my blog you know i'm lucky if i get a th- i mean really successful blog posts will get a thousand hits uh-huh. most of them it's 300 if i'm lucky right yep. so and i and i sometimes wonder why am i even doing this why am i writing these stupid books but you gotta figure that you know, it, it's not a numbers game that there's there's you're you're contributing some kind of quality to the world sure by doing this and you'll never know the outcomes and i'm sure this is how havel and his, and his friends felt in the 60s and 70s when yeah, at least you're trying to keep the helped. lights on right mm-hmm. you know? well they were doing it and they were they were doing it for themselves yeah you know they didn't know that they figured it would probably end eventually, but they didn't know. And, and I'll have to read this uh, another, I keep, hate to keep reading, do it. but I'm a professor. That's what we do. Right. Uh, but one of the things he writes here in uh, the power of the powerless, and this is right. This is a great title. The power of the powerless. I get it thoroughly. I was born getting that almost like ontologically good. Yeah, yes. Power weakens as it grows. is one of my favorite statements. Mm-hmm. And here's what he says in this situation. There are only two possibilities. Either the post-totalitarian system will go on developing, that is, will be able to go on developing, thus inevitably coming closer to some dreadful Orwellian vision of a, of a world of absolute manipulation, while all the more the articulate expressions of living within the truth are definitively snuffed out, or the independent life of society, the parallel polis, including the dissident movements. 
will slowly but surely become a social phenomenon of growing importance, taking a real part in the life of society with increasing clarity and influencing the general situation. Of course, this will always be only one of many factors influencing the situation, and it will operate rather in the background, in concert with other factors, and in a way appropriate to the background, mm. right? So he not only, and he wrote this in 78, I think I said, oh, 78, yeah. which was 12 years before the fall of the wall, or 11 years before the fall. So he didn't know when, you know, mm-hmm. if that would happen or when that would happen. But I think he was, like you just mentioned, Orwell. He, he goes to Orwell. Yeah. Right? So, and, and, and this, the post-totalitarian totalitarian system will go on developing, that is, will be able to go on, on developing, thus inevitably coming closer to some dreadful Orwellian vision of a world of absolute manipulation. And I think we do live in a world of absolute manipulation right now. And those propaganda techniques have become so sophisticated and so effective um, in the last, especially in the last two years. I mean, I've always known about it, but it became so, and I don't know, you probably feel the same way. It just seems so blatant to me and so phony. And like Guido was saying, everything's fake. Mm-hmm. How could other, how could most people not see it? And I don't mean most people like, you know, people of you know high school education i mean professors i mean educated people who are still still wearing masks still getting i'm gonna, up for the I'm gonna make the day. case that just like i try to put honestly and not trying to be um so magnanimous but you know if i really think about it i think how people kind of fall so fast just expert you know, there's a science of propaganda. So everything you said, check, 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 100%. But the notion that it goes against this bedrock, kind of a default assumption of inevitable progress, science and technology make the world better. The other one that I think allows for this is the opposite of the parallel polis, which is from the bottom up, small acts of defiance, people like faces and names and stories, individual stories. I mean, that's where it's gonna begin. The opposite is this notion that, um, you know, it was a couple of years ago, I went to a lecture here at the college where I work and it was a visiting professor. And I think he was talking, I, I wanna be honest too, and say that he was talking about world governments because he just thought it was, these things are talked about. It wasn't like a back room, it wasn't the Rockefellers, but he was just talking about, and he was a philosophy professor, how sane it was because his question uh, that he approached philosophically was that, think about it friends, you know, he was saying that, your local police department, and of course he was thinking about the South, you know, that's in the South. It might have corruption, it might have racist, so you need somebody else to come in and clean it out. But you know, that state, that state that might clean it out might also have corruption. So you need need a larger entity to come in there and clean it out. That country that cleans the state out, which cleans the village out, might have some corruption. There could be racist or something. So Mm -hmm. you gotta go in there and clean it out. So his answer was, you know, kind of world governance. And the, yeah. apart from it being the classic example of kicking the can down the road, the fundamental questions are, you know, a couple. One is who's fundamentally going to police the policemen, even to the top level? I did ask that question. And I can't say his response was that he, well, he certainly had never thought of it. But they How just. How could he uh, never thought of it? <laughs> he, he never thought of it. I swear to God, he had never thought of it, but he wasn't stunned by it. He just, he was on this trajectory, this this scale that I was just describing was obviously like who he had become as a person. Now, the flip side of that, my case for the bottom up, okay, there could be corruption. Why then do I, Mike Sauter, favor the bottom up? And the key word I want to use, again, is imagination. That um, when you're dealing at the lower level, you're more likely to know the person. So if I'm dealing with abstractions, uh, whether it be at the state level, uh, the, the country level, or the World Health Organization level, where you're just dealing with statistics and algorithms and so forth, it's just so easy for those entities you're dealing with not to have reality, right? And I always tell college students that I'm a very rooted person. I've lived in the same town, my same house now for, uh, I think, 25 years. I've lived in the same 30 square miles, basically my whole life, um, that I can't tell people how refreshing it is that when I 
when I take my car to the mechanic, um, that he knows who I am. He, my mechanic, like anybody in this world could be having a bad day. Now, when I'm having a bad day and I have to do my job, sometimes my job comes off a little more shoddily, right? But so I could, I could call my mechanic and say that my car, you know, I have a flat tire um, and he could either do the job well, give it a real good patch seal or not. But um, if I'm just an abstraction um, to him, it's easier to treat me as an object and do a kind of a shoddy job. But he knows that I'm somebody's father. I'm somebody's husband. And fundamentally that I'm a neighbor. When we, when we take all power and throw it to the top, and I'm trying to make the case again, that the people who believe this might be believing it for good reasons. So I'm trying to be very concrete. Why the smaller entity works is you're less likely to treat people as things, as statistics, as means, not ends, as data, right? You know, so the fundamental thing in so many of my writings at Front Porch Republic, and I've never seen it um, displayed so well, as you mentioned, Terrence Malik, but it was, uh, it was the movie, The Third Man. You know, Graham Greene, the great Catholic mm -hmm. novelist, wrote the screenplay. And uh, it was just there in front of me where Orson Welles, who plays the villain Harry Lyme in post-World War II Europe, mm -hmm. is watering down penicillin. And potency is big, whether it's herbalist drugs or, or pharmaceuticals. He's watering down their potency. So uh, half the people who thought they were getting the right amount of penicillin were not. And they were going to die. They were going to die. Pharmaceuticals, they were going to die. Mm -hmm. um, and the point somebody confronted <laughs> at the top of this big Ferris wheel uh, in post-war Austria to the background of zither music in this old black and white novel um, or movie and said, you know, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize what you're doing? The people are going to die. And the villain, Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, looks below him and he, he's, he tells his, uh, his antagonist there, the person who is kind of tracking him and says, look, you know, what's, what's beneath you? What do you see down there? You know, the answer was dots, you know, and, and the classic case was that these dots were people. But this this philanthropist, this humanitarian um, had no problems, uh, said, you know, what happens if you erase half those dots? Does it really change anything? But this is the evil of our time. This mm -hmm. is the evil of throwing all the power to the top. And the, the opposite is imagination, that seeing, putting yourself into another person's place. You and I both know the famous definition of sin for a, uh, you know, Tomberg, Valentian Tomberg is, we know we're in sin when we say me real, you shadow, you know, when we can turn the other human face in front of us that has a story in a background and turn it into a shadow, then we're in sin. And when you and I talk about sophiology, or we use the world that's banal in one sense, but the real, we're mm -hmm. talking about the antithesis of this, where the things around us are shining in all their as Blake says, they're minute particularity. They're minute particulars. And that's why we got to devolve power from the top down. And that's why a parallel polis makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 it not only does it make sense, but uh, it, it diffuses power. You know, the, the power structure, it, it, uh, it you know, it, it's, it's the whole idea of distributism, right? Is, uh, widespread ownership of land right it makes a lot of sense right it does because yeah. that way it doesn't concentrate in you know land barons or bill gates gathering up all the farmland or whatever it happens to be right and uh and that's where human flourishing starts it's and 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 do, do you really need all this stuff i mean that's what with the amish i mean i mean people I think very, very often think the Amish are not what the Amish really are. I mean, the Amish I know use phones. Not they... all of ours. Ours, ours will, and <clears throat> I don't mean this to berate them. We have. Uh, I'm surrounded by Amish, and uh, they will go to the neighbor's house to use a phone. But it happens right. a lot. It happens a lot. Yeah. What the Amish I know now. I know one Amish guy who's had a nicer cell phone than I have, <laughs> but uh -huh. he's only allowed to use it for for certain things and yeah. they go to the community and say, you know, I need this for my business, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and they make a decision as a community about whether that can be allowed. Yeah. Uh, just like uh, if you've seen the film, what is it called? Oh, I can't remember the name of them. It's about this Carmelite monastery in London. 
I have a copy of it. I can't remember the name of it. But in there, you know, this guy worked for years trying to get the nuns to let him interview them. And they put him off for a long time, but they finally agreed to let him in. And he just filmed them over the course of a year. And he had occasional interviews with some of the, the sisters. And one of the things one of the sisters was talking about, you know, we had they had they had to come to a decision about whether they should allow television. You know, because we could just restrict it to only watching videos, but then they decided that it, it would compromise their, their contemplative lives too much and they shouldn't do it. Though they, at least one of them, they, they had one uh, computer so they could be on the internet because uh, their their money-making activity was actually, they they made the host for, for mass. Mm. So you would get those, you know, those big bag, bags of hosts you sure. get in Roman Catholic churches, yeah. they, they made them. So they had to have uh, internet access so people could make orders or churches could make orders and stuff like this. But, but it was very, uh, you know, it was community driven. So in a way, the Amish are kind of like a bigger version of that monastery. Did the right? monastery the get community. a TV or no? No, they never got one. Yeah, we, it, you know, so may have mentioned in a previous installment, but uh, for a number of years I worked, I've been associated with them for a long time, their neighbors, but the Trappist Monastery, the Abbey of the Genesee, and I ran, I was the retreat house manager for a number of years, um, got to see the inner workings, but they were quite brilliant. They used the word, they said, if they take a piece of technology, can it be monasticized? Meaning, and this is, I can swear, you know, having read as much Ivan Illich as anybody I know. This is exactly what he was talking about in his book, Tools for Conviviality. Yeah. But whether technology brings people together or whether it separates them. So the telephone, if, if, a, if a cloistered monk wanted to call mom on Mother's Day and things, they thought, boy, that was just great. You know, not a huge problem. Um, other technology. But they see, again, A, in general, does it, does it fracture community or bring them together? Mm-hmm. Be under what conditions, you know, that does it bring people together or beyond which it fractures? And that's the Internet. They use a little bit of Internet beyond a critical mass, though, it's going to fracture. But the TV they brought in, boy, and that didn't last long at all. They um, they found themselves talk about amusing yourselves to death. Mm-hmm. They fired the bad boy up and they saw all these passive spectators. And then they put it in a closet and they pulled it out for some 9-11 coverage, maybe a papal election here or there. They watch a couple of movies in the week between uh, oh, Christmas and New Year's. But the TV, they thought as, I mean, if they had never heard the term, they would have recoined the term idiot box. You know, it was so tragic. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. Bonnie and I were, were, were we were driving yesterday through the countryside and there's a new uh, Amish community not too far away. And she just happened to observe that, uh, you know, with these impending food shortages and power outages and all these other things that are, we're being warned are going to happen or monkey pox. Uh-huh. That was yesterday's. <laughs> I know too funny. And, uh, Bill Gates, I just happened to have a monkey pox vaccine in the works. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You can't make this stuff up. Oh, did he actually, I thought you were doing a parody there. Um, no, he, well, he has a smallpox vaccine. Okay. Yeah. Even though small monkeypox is, is closely related. Okay. Gotcha. The smallpox. I thought you might've had a video clip where yesterday he literally said, cause it's, you're not stretching it. Well, in 2019, uh, the FDA approved a a smallpox vaccine and smallpox has been eradicated from the face of the earth. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Come on. But anyway, so she observed that, that. all these things will not affect the Amish at all. Yeah. You know, because they, they don't use electricity for one thing, mm-hmm. right? They, 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 they sometimes they have like those headlamp things you use when you go to work on the chickens, you know, okay. at night, they use those at the, at the butcher shop, but uh-huh. they don't have any electricity. They do uh, have a, the butcher shop. They have, uh, I think it's a diesel powered, motor to for cooling they have for refrigeration for their they have like this where they hang the meat mm-hmm. in the in the in the in, at least in the summer but it's very limited and and these you know they don't have any you know uh, uh, small appliances like blenders in their houses they they still have the old crank egg egg beaters right and 
And as you know, uh, John Michael Greer. In, I was just going to mention him. Well, we'll have. You know, him and he stuff. talks about this, and he in his book uh, "Our Retro Future." Did you read mm -hmm. that one? Yeah. And uh, he talks about the for him the model is to really to adapt a kind of a Victorian or steampunk approach to things, you know, where there's limited technology because he and he thinks it'll be because the fossil fuel thing is just going to go bust. Right. All right. And uh, but with a limited kind of technology and people actually learning how to do things. And he points to, um, and I love going to these things, you know, when people do like reenactments, not just of, of civil war stuff, but here they do pioneer reenactments. There's actually yeah. a, in a old farmhouse, not too far away from us that, uh, um, you know, so, so people there know how to, sh they, they have demonstrations on shearing sheep and, you know, drying fish and drying meat and other, other kinds of things that pioneers would have done. And if you go into my barn, I mean, my house was built by hand, which is amazing. You know, um, mine was too. Mine was too. Yeah. It's got these three by tens <clears throat> in the basement. You know, they're mm -hmm. still as strong as they were the day they were laid. On their heart is a rock mine because it was built in the 1860s. So yeah. <laughs> when I moved here, I was trying to nail some spikes into a, this one post when I was putting up a gate for a, for goats <laughs> and even big those big pole barn yeah. spikes would just i know it fold. well yeah they would just fold you know young so, people uh, too are they're i'm sure you in the classes you teach um interested in all that stuff you know when my wife is a big knitter and uh i always think that you know my head is filled with certain books i certainly i have a large garden you know, I raise my chickens and things. I'm uh, handy and, and outdoorsy stuff. But um, in in campus ministry, for example, you know that, uh, and I'm I'm happy about this. But the students don't give a crap about what mm -hmm. I might know about this or that. But they say like, you know, can your wife teach me knitting? You know, that's that's the fundamental thing. And so um, the parallel polis uh, has a bright future because people. This is one thing you and I both see. There is an interest in. Um, in this, the, uh, you know, doing things real with their hands. You and right. I are talking about, you know, from the bottom up, uh, building new things, even a sacramental worldview. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the beginnings are already taking place with, you know, this anxious persons, they find that they, they have uh, a little piece when they're finger knitting, even much less, you know, knit pearl, knit pearl. Right. Um, you know, and piece by piece, we are seeing it around us. So St. Paul famously says, you know, give me a reason for your hope. Sometimes, uh, even though I think the anxiety seems to be outpacing these things that people are finding, you know, all of a sudden, like the tortoise and the hare, all of a sudden, this the young people's interest in these basic uh, handicrafts, like you're saying, the pioneer days, mm -hmm. uh, uh, cooking, farm to table restaurants, things yeah. like that. They're they're there. They're at least a sign of hope. Blacksmithing, you know, absolutely. All, all these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, yep. you know, like. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Paul Kingsnorth. Yeah. You know, who in his, one of, I can't remember the title, which book it is, but he has an essay on scything. He, he learned how to use, use a scythe, so he mows with a scythe. Uh -huh. right? and, and he has a, another one about his composting toilet. It's great. Which is because in, 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 his real, in his words, because I wanted to literally own my own shit. Yeah, I read. There's a stat in a, just a, <laughs> one interjection there. I think it's in the book Shadow Work. I, we mentioned Ivan Illich a lot, but he said, you know, um, until 1846, the city of Paris had to, you know, they exported vegetables to the surrounding countryside because, uh, based on the scientist Harvey's understanding of the circulatory system, all of a sudden you got sewer systems in the major cities, right? Good and bad. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say mostly. Good, I guess. But once we're in, uh, when you started uh, transporting everybody's fecal matter outside the city walls, you had less. And also, you know, think of the funeral industry. Uh, not only, you know, I work in a church. We have these caskets that are designed to last forever. Uh, they're wrapped in another in another kind of just bland steel mm -hmm. box. But all of a sudden, you know, we just stopped reducing organic matter. And so 1846 was the year that 
Uh, I don't know if that's if Paris would say that's when their sewer system went up and operating, but it's a useful. I've never forgotten that story as to how much, um, you know, when we when we get rid of dirt, we have this vision of dirt. We have to sweep it away, get it mm -hmm. out of there. Uh, but it, your story about Kings North makes me think of that. I mean, and and in fact, not too long ago, I just uh, we had this yurt out in our woods that we'll be renting for for a B and B. Um, but I, so I, to, to service that I had to make an outhouse. Mm -hmm. So I have a composting toilet in the outhouse, That's great. which you really start to realize how much waste there is when you have to deal with it on a personal <laughs> level. My wife would tell the story. We have a, we have one bathroom in the house, a small Cape Cod again, built so long ago. Um, she was telling the other day how, uh, my oldest son, Peter was in, grammar school and they were talking about how the pioneers lived and how there was no heat in part of the house and you'd have to travel all this way he said that's my house but anyhow when my wife was pregnant with our third kid our bedroom was upstairs and she was going to have to pee a lot so um at the parish where i worked we have a you know medical supplies kind of warehouse people borrow stuff and go back so i took home a commode and it was in the upstairs that if she had in the middle of the night but uh I was using it more than her. You know, for the listeners, <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so convenient. But the listeners need to know I was never, a, we'll call it number two. I was heading downstairs <laughs> for that. But uh, there's this great, you know, I don't know. When all of a sudden, talk about anal retentive, when you see every time you flush a nice log down, you know, that you're getting, in one sense, you're getting rid of something that could be productive uh, in your mm -hmm. yard at a, at a different time. Yep. So that's what, so I have, I, I have, uh, so a compost in there and then, well, kind of half compost in there and then you take it out to a, I don't put it in our compost pile for our garden, but I have no, a separate no. compost pile, which is for the trees out in, in the woods. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. And it could be years, years later, still doing great work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how about this? Um, we're, this will be a theme, the parallel polis that um, we'll be weaving in and out. I saw this week alone, yesterday I saw, people could look it up, good people. One is Charles Eisenstein. Um, when they talk about economics from the bottom up, it was a group called CELO, C-E-L-O, CELO.org. Mm -hmm. They were talking about a new, um, I think there are small scale uh, banking and so forth. There's another one that has a friend of Guido's, uh, Richard Werner, who's a world-class economist. He's like the big guy. Okay. He's associated with something called the Valhalla Network, I think, of small scale economic enterprises. Okay. And I'm working on some of this stuff, as you know, myself cool. as friends. Yeah. Uh, any other, any other places you want to point people to? Um, oh, well, I think probably the easiest way to do this is to get involved in the CSA. Yeah. Just about anybody can do that. Um, and, and I'm thinking, I'm looking for it right now. Pete Seeger um, he has a great quote about the village. I don't know if I can pull it out of here. But when he said, you know, people conserved him, accused him of being progressive or liberal. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm conservative. But I'm the kind of conservative that wants to go back to the village where we take care of each other. You know? Absolutely. I, I said I, the same thing, too. I want to conserve, I want to conserve topsoil. I want to yeah. conserve young men's lives from dying in stupid wars overseas. Mm -hmm. um, I want to conserve some values and so forth. Absolutely. And so that, that, I, that is the, and the thing is, it doesn't, people I think get overwhelmed because they think that could never going to happen. It can never do this. It's too much, but you start, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Amen. You start where you are. As uh, and you, and you Bill act, Kaufman famously says about Booker T. Washington, you know, mm -hmm. you uh, it's a it's a great quote for localists, and I mm -hmm. think it's attributable to Booker T. Washington. That, you know, eventually you put down your bucket and you sit there, and mm -hmm. at that point you just start doing something local around you. That's all it is. Yeah, and, and I'm really inspired. One of my neighbors, Brent, uh, he <clears throat> he's got a bigger farm than we do, but it's it was. He is really working so hard because he just bought this land. It was, I think, it was reclaimed farmland. It was really pretty wasted, but he's reclaiming it and really doing wonderful things with 
planting chestnut trees and all kinds of different natives. In fact, um, I texted him the other day because I wanted to know where he got his pawpaws from. Mm. So, and he told me, and I went and got some, I got a bunch of pawpaws yesterday, which I'm going to plant probably yeah. tomorrow. Um, but they're slow and steady wins the race. I mean, you know, that, he, that character in, in Owen Barfield's <clears throat> Eager Spring, if you've read that. I have not read that one. Okay. Well, it's, it's really, uh, there's some of that stuff that feels dated, but it's an excellent book on the environment, but, um, and very cheap. But the, the hero is really just an old guy who's planting trees. He just has, uh, mm-hmm. he picks up acorns and, and, um, and plants them. And then at the end, he's, he gets called to do a very, you know, kind of a, a self-sacrificial act. But his, his fight against the machine was mm-hmm. uh, you know, planting trees. Yep. Johnny Appleseed. Johnny- Right, Johnny Appleseed. In that great essay that uh, John Michael Gray wrote about Johnny Appleseed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's where it is. I mean, that's where it starts. I mean, you don't you don't have to have it all figured out. Somebody shares a birthday with Johnny Appleseed, September 26th. His name is Mike Sauter. Oh, really? On that note, yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll be signing off for the Regeneration Podcast, and we will see everybody again uh, next week.